Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Benjamin Kelly. For more than 15 years, Ben has been involved in the software testing industry, working both for startups and for large established enterprises, and he is currently the managing director of House of Test UK. Ben is the author of the LeanPub book, Standout, A Career Guide to Gainful Employment as a Skilled Software Tester. The book is meant to help you get noticed and land a job in an environment where hundreds of people are applying for roles these days. It also goes into detail with practical strategies for something increasingly important for people from all walks of life, especially those with an independent streak, which is building a personal presence or brand. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Benjamin Kelly and visit his blog at testjutsu.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ben's background and career, his professional interests, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Ben, for being on the Lean Pub podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I should also say thank you for taking some time out of your evening. Um, it's it's uh, noon here on the west coast of North America, but it's uh, 8 p.m. in London where Ben Ben is talking from. Um, so thanks for that. Um, I, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could, you, you've been around, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and how you first became interested in, in software and computers. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, as a kid, I was, I was into computers, um, but I, I guess you could say I, I was into computers the same way that a, that a fat kid's into cake. I was more of a consumer than a, than a creator. So, uh, you know, I got through high school. Um, and if you looked at my grades, you probably would have said, yeah, that guy's really, probably, probably really good at video games. Um, <laughs> um, and, and that was about it. But, uh, you know, I, I uh, I uh, went to university, did computer science, uh, and, and dropped out uh, after the first year, um, and then ended up working for a, for an ISP, an internet service provider, as a, as a sysop, uh, and, and that's kind of where I really started to gain uh, the really employable skills that I've kind of taken and, and, and continued to use. Um, I went to Japan for a year. Um, went to a, it was a, a sports university actually, so a complete sort of break from uh, from my career. Uh, then back to university and actually stuck it out. Graduated. Um, still not particularly talented. I was, I was I was still looking to get into um, being a programmer. Um, but once I um, received enough sort of rejection letters to wallpaper a room, uh, you know, a friend of mine suggested to me that perhaps uh, testing might be a way to bridge in. Um, and so I got a got a job as a tester, and then realised uh, that I was far better at. Um, Finding how things didn't work than than uh, than making them work in the first place. And, uh, that probably should have been apparent to me far earlier than it was. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed testing, and then started to get quite good at testing, and then uh, started to meet other testers who were also good, and, and uh, that's pretty much where I am. And uh, this was um, the the events you've been describing, uh, apart from Japan, were taking place in Melbourne. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So I grew up, grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and, uh, that's where the vast majority of my, my education happened. And was, um, was, uh, I'm just curious, was computer science something that, you know, all the, all the kids were into? Um, uh, most of the nerds. Yeah. Most, <laughs> most of the, uh, the, uh, the guys who, um, didn't particularly like playing football or, or uh, other, other sports. Uh, we sort of hang out, used to hang out on the other side of the high school and play Dungeons and Dragons and, and talk about, you know, various um, nerd minutia. Well, I've got, I've got some, I think you might be being a little bit overly modest about sports there because I've got some questions to ask you about that in a few minutes. But um, uh, one thing I always like to ask people on this podcast, if it's relevant, is um, if you were starting out, you know, 
tomorrow in a career uh, like the one you've developed, or if you were giving advice to someone who was embarking on a career like that, would you recommend that they do a full university degree in pursuit of that career? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. And uh, the conclusion that I've reached after well, a number of years of study of martial arts is that I think software development and the various disciplines should really be taught as an apprenticeship. Um, so if I was going to suggest uh, that people do anything, it would be look for some sort of, of um, education that combines theory and practic uh, practical with the, the heavy emphasis on the practical. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's nothing wrong with with doing three years of, of fundamentals and, and really learning uh, about you know how computers work and, and, and the underlying systems that, that sort of hold them all together but at a university certainly certainly my university education wasn't what I would call a, a sort of a, a good preparation for stepping into how software developments are actually done or how software development actually works in the real world you know you, you tend not to see things like uh, understanding how to uh, describe business value or how to realize business value or, uh, you know, certainly as a programmer, you know, that the emphasis on testing is very, very slight, at least it was back when, when uh, I was at school. So uh, I think that the sooner that you can get into coding at the coalface in a place that actually matters uh, in terms of what you deliver, then, um, you know, the sooner you can do that, the better. Um, you brought up, uh, martial arts. And um, I know that martial arts, and as you just mentioned, with the concept of apprenticeship and um, software testing are are sort of uh, joined uh, themes in, uh, in your career. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you uh, how you got into kendo in the first place. Uh, yeah, a bit of a long story, but uh... When I was in primary school, we had a, a Japanese exchange teacher who was into kendo and kenjutsu, and uh, so he did a, a demonstration. Um, at, and, and at that point, I, I was hooked. Uh, and, and so, I think it wasn't until I was sort of seventeen or so um, we found I found a, uh, uh, a kendo jo uh, in my area and, and started and been training ever since. And for those who aren't necessarily aware can you talk a little bit about what what kendo is and a little bit about its history yeah so kendo is the the art of the sword or the, the way of the sword uh, it's a japanese martial art that's uh, approximately 400 years old um and and uh, after the, the the battle of sekigahara which was where um Ieyasu Tokugawa uh, more or less took over the country um it was kind of the, the last or well, one of the last major battles certainly for for a couple of hundred years um and uh, so there are a number of sword schools that existed at that point um, that sort of found themselves increasingly with, with not that much to do. Um, and and through, throughout the years, there's sort of a, a consolidation of styles. Um, and uh, training with a sword obviously is, is reasonably dangerous. And, and so they had different, different ways of uh, practicing to make that less lethal. Uh, but even using a, a wooden sword... Um, is, is quite dangerous and also potentially fatal. Um, they ended up using, coming up with uh, what's, what's called a shinai, which is essentially a, a bamboo sword or a bamboo representation of a sword. Uh, and this was refined over many years from 
you know, upwards of sort of 32 different slats of bamboo held together by leather strips down to four, so what we use in modern kendo today. So there's, there's a kind of a, a long uh, sort of story history of, of kendo, but there, there is a sort of a um, – uh, there was a practical application or, uh, to it that uh, perhaps isn't quite so relevant today, but it's certainly deeply rooted in uh, the actual use of the, the Japanese katana. Yeah, that's a, thanks for that. That really good um, history. It's it's interesting. I, I happen to know a little bit about this. Um, I read some books edited by Diane Scoss a few years ago. One of which is called Koryo Bujutsu. Um, and um, I want to ask you about that distinction between when, the use of jutsu and do, which I'm I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, uh, which I know you've written about. But um, just if I can digress. Uh, there was another group of uh, people in Japan who ended up with less to do after a certain juncture in history, and that was um, ninjas. Um, I, I don't know if you've have you seen. There's a book called the Benson Shukai that was. Probably, I have not seen it. It's it's fascinating. It's um, the first in, the, the the copy I have is the first English translation of these manuals um, written by this community, this ninja community. Uh, and, um, what happened was they found themselves with, they were mostly farmers who were called upon to do their ninja duties when required. And then basically, yeah, as you were suggesting things, things changed in Japan, including the, uh, a change in castle architecture, mm. um, which made, uh, getting in a lot harder. And as the, as they complain in the manuals, you know, it's, they would they would claim that just that everybody decided they were harder to get into, uh, but it became harder for the ninjas to convince their patrons to hire them to try to break into these impenetrable fortresses. That's interesting. Yeah, and so they 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 were basically becoming impoverished, and so they wrote these manuals to give them as a gift to a local potentate um, to try and convince him, hey, you still need ninjas. Um, right. But they, of course, they have to, there, there's just all these contradictions built into what they do. So, for example, one thing they say is um, you can't let anybody know that you've hired ninjas or who they are. So you need to let them in the back door to your castle. And by right. the way, it just so happens that we ninjas know the back doors to your enemy's castles, too. Um, <laughs> uh, and it didn't it didn't work apparently um so well, there's this wonderful artifact of all these manuals but um you know they they sort of continued to decline from at least their moment of glory um but yeah on, given this it's interesting because this distinction between jutsu and do i believe is important to be framed in that historical context and could you could you talk a little bit about that yeah so so very briefly sort of Jutsu is is a, a kind of a, a martial application. It's, it's uh, you know if you look at judo versus jujutsu, which is probably something most people are familiar with. Um, jujutsu, um, it really is um, a series of techniques in which to rapidly incapacitate another human being uh, in, in order to either get away or, or to uh, subdue them. Uh, judo, whilst it has the same sort of or similar sort of techniques and, and, and same sort of grappling and, and, and throws and so forth, the, uh, the aspect behind that is really uh, self-improvement through, through the study of, of, of similar art. And the same goes for, for kendo. In, in, in kendo, it's... Uh, improvement of the self through the, the principles of the study of the sword. And so 
when, when you look at um, other sword arts like um, very sort of koryu iojutsu or um, or tamasigiri, which is sort of test cutting of a, of a makiwara, which is a kind of a rolled up reed mat, um, those, those are are quite practical in their application. Um, and certainly with Tamasugiri, you actually end up cutting through something, uh, which is, uh, I'm led to believe, the uh, the approximate thickness of a human torso or the, the re- approximate resistance of a human torso. In Kendo, um, despite the fact that it's a full contact martial arts, um, th- there's not a lot of actual practica- pract- practical application um, of, uh, sort of crossover between how to use a sword, the way that you uh, strike an opponent um, in kendo isn't so uh, sort of reminiscent of how you might use a katana to, to do the same sort of thing, despite the fact that the uh, uh, the practice has, has developed uh, from that. So in, in effect, what you're doing is is studying how to uh, face off against an opponent, how to how to defeat them, how to outthink them. It's it's essentially a, a very physical, uh, very rapid game of, of sort of chess um, with with the ultimate aim to improve yourself as opposed to defeat someone or defeat multiple people. And in, in competition, um, uh, where are you, are there any parts of the body where you're not allowed to strike with the sword, with the, um, weapon? Yes. That would be most places. So there are four main targets in Kendall, which is the, the head, the wrists, uh, the, the abdomen and the throat. Uh, everything else is pretty much out of bounds. Uh, and I imagine these parts are these parts are covered. Um, uh, uh, what happens if you if you and I and I imagine so you say abdomen is that um, stabbing? I don't know what the correct term would be, but are you allowed to slash there as well? Uh, it is a slashing motion there. The, the the only real sort of thrust is is to the throat. Okay, okay. And what what happens? I'm curious. Um, I've done a little bit of competing in in other martial arts. What what happens? Um, in kendo, if you strike in the wrong place, uh, so if if it's if you're in competition uh, and uh, the judges sort of agree that you've uh, you've done it on purpose, then you might be anything from given a, a warning uh, or, or a foul to being disqualified. Depends on how sort of egregious the uh, um, uh, the, the hit is. If it's uh, clearly unsportsmanlike conduct, then then you're done. And um, is is disarming the opponent part of it as well? I imagine that's the risk strike is probably part of that uh you can disarm actually there's there are techniques where you can uh completely uh, knock or, or flip the opponent's shinai out of their hands and and uh if you're quick enough then you can you can follow up with a strike that it, that will count uh if not then they'll have a uh, a half point scored against them uh i see i see okay okay um and you you said you studied at uh i looked i looked up your profile on linkedin um the uh, sports university in Japan it was called the International Budo University. Um, That's right. What was that experience like? Uh, that was pretty intense. Uh, so we were training uh, six days a week, um, between four and six hours a day, uh, and, and so that, that was pretty full on. Uh, and and for, for me, that was part of my preparation for uh, an attempt at the World Championships. Um, that particular attempt was unsuccessful, but I was, I was successful on, on uh, sort of uh, future uh, future efforts, and so it was, a, it was a good grounding for me. It was a great great way to spend a year training with people who's you know who, who were studying to become uh, police and and uh, high school teachers. Um, you know, it, it's great to be able to study at a place where you can get a degree in, in martial arts or a degree in a, in a specific martial art. 
And what was the six hours of or four to six hours of studies studies a day like? I mean, did you get up at six in the morning and run up the mountain, or? Uh, so there was uh, morning training. So you'd get up at about six and you train for an hour. Uh, and then you'd probably go and collapse somewhere for an hour and a half, and then uh, um, there'd be uh, practical classes throughout the day. So those were somewhat less intense. Uh, so you'd be practicing techniques and sort of various applications, some kata, and then another two hours of training in the evening. Um, and, and so that was five days a week. And I think we had, uh, um, another three hours on, on the Saturday. So they, yeah, they, they went pretty easy, pretty easy on us on the weekends. Um, and you just mentioned you, uh, at least once you represented Australia at the world kendo championships, I believe during your, um, was that during your time at uh, the university of Melbourne? Uh, so I was there, I it was, uh, Partially there, there and shortly thereafter. So 2006 and 2009 uh, was when I represented Australia. So it was in uh, Taipei and Brazil. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the pressure? Um, uh, you know, I've never competed at anything remotely like that level. But, I mean, going into a match is an intense thing and being in a match is an intense thing. Yeah. What, and, was, and what was your first match like? I guess it's probably a more specific question. How did you, how did you feel? My first match, I, I was I was pretty hungry for actually. I'd, I'd been uh, training for such a long time to make the Australian team, uh, and, and been unsuccessful, I think, in uh, three or four campaigns. And so I'd had uh, maybe ten or eleven years of, of uh, not making the team, and so I was going to make that one count. Um, so I don't remember much about that first match, other than it didn't last very long, um, and. Uh, uh, I, I was happy with with how that went, but um, yeah, it, it's funny um, because when you when you sort of go in there, you 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 look around and you see every other person in that space has been training for three plus years with the, the sole goal in mind to to do well in the matches that they they uh, that they're there for, and uh, it is another level of intensity, even even from sort of domestic competition. It, it kind of ratchets, ratchets up a, a notch or two, and uh, you know you you have to be on, you have to be uh, prepared. You, you can't bring anything but your A game, uh, otherwise it's just not good enough. And you know, looking around, you, you sort of see, particularly with the Japanese team, uh, also to an extent, the you know the American Brazilian teams uh, are also sort of feeling really, really strong people. Um, you know, these people that you know through various relationships, a lot of these people will train in Japan, and so you run into them on, on sort of fairly regular basis. Uh, and of course, the uh, the Japanese team is full of all stars. You see them at the uh, the All Japan Championships on, on a regular basis as well. Um, but uh, you know, to whatever extent you can, you can't. You, you try and sort of push that to one side and and focus on uh, the match that you have to to fight next. And uh, you know, the uh, it can be distracting with the the, the crowd around you. But uh, ultimately, once once you step onto the shiage or the, the the place where you actually fight, uh, most of that goes away, and it's just the the person in front of you. Yeah, it's interesting. Excuse me, it's interesting. You talk about the person in front of you. One of the things that's unique about that type of competition and it of course it's you know it's true in in boxing and in uh, wrestling is that it's you and this other person and you're not out to beat the other person in the sense of like crossing the finish line before they do um and you beating them something like right. literally um and uh and it, there's no teammate um for either you or your opponent that's right there's just you and there's something very 
invigorating, but uh, yeah, and, and special about that type of competition. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, though, my uh, there, there there are there is team competition in kendo, and oh, so you so. play. Yeah, you, you play matches of, of uh, team, teams of five, and so um, you know you, you play off down the line, put one against one, two against two, and so on down the line. And, and so uh, I actually uh, always felt most comfortable in, in in team competition because you know I, I had people either side of me, um, and, and people that that were relying on me to uh, to, to hold my, my end up, and 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 so um, that. That added expectation, the weight of that expectation, I actually um, it gave me more energy, it gave me more focus to to go into a match. And um, did you have uh, any teachers that were particularly special to you in your in your time training? Yeah, um, and uh, this particular teacher, I think, is is uh, is a favorite of many Australian kendoka. But uh, his name is Shizawa Kunio. He was the uh, the head instructor at. Um, um, Japan Sports Science University, Nihon Taiku Daigaku. And uh, he, he spent a year out in Australia, uh, I couldn't even tell you when, it was many, many decades ago now, but, uh, and, and always brought uh, or frequently brought students of his uh, out to Australia to visit. Um, and uh, I don't know that there's, there's uh, a teacher who is, is uh, more respected or more revered uh, in, than, than him in, a, in Australian kendo, and certainly I'm no exception in that regard. And what is it about him that makes him so uh, beloved? I, I think I think his approach to life in general. Um, you know, he's he just seems to to have a um, sort of knows when to be serious, but also knows when to have a laugh. And, and so, you know, th- this is a guy who, um, you know, you can talk at that length with in terms of, of Kendall and, and martial philosophy. Um, happy to have a you know a chat and, and uh, you know as soon as you step into the door, Joel, he, he's 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 the sensei, he, he's the teacher, and, and uh, you know one one sort of reasonably harsh word from him can make me question my life choices. Um, but that um, you know his ability to kind of walk the walk and, and do what he says he'll do, um, you, you can't help but respect. Uh, that level of, of, of commitment. Uh, it, it's difficult for me to describe, um, but, uh, you know, he's, you know, it's not that he was the guy who, who won all the competitions. I think he, maybe he, he won one or two in his time, but uh, he was the guy who was, was, was always able to, to get his point across, always able to teach, always able to um, – take someone no matter where they were in, in their Kendor journey and give them something that they could use. Um, and I, I saw him do this time and again with, with any number of people, his ability to teach was, was unrivaled as far as I'm concerned. Um, on the subject of life choices, you, uh, like many other Australians actually decided at one point to move to London. Um, right. and I wanted to ask you about that. Was that, uh, with the intention of going for a short period of time, or was it in your mind a, a permanent move? Uh, so I, I guess a semi-permanent move. I, I was I was born in in London, uh, so it was, it was, and I moved to Australia when I was very young, maybe one or two. Um, and so in many respects, I was sort of coming back, although I didn't remember much about it. Um, at the time when I moved to London, I'd been living in Tokyo for maybe five years. Um, and so it was actually a, a kind of a, a happy coincidence. There was a, a friend of mine um, working at uh, eBay, 
and uh, asked if I wanted a, a job with them in London or asked whether I wanted to apply. And uh, my, my wife, who is, who is Japanese, um, has this sort of love affair with London as well. And, and so the, uh, the opportunity to, for her to go and uh, spend a lot of time in, in the West End seeing uh, musicals and various other theatre was uh, something that she couldn't pass up. And so at that point, it became a very easy decision. And um, so you, I, I can see from your profile um, online that um, you uh, progressed uh, steadily in your time at eBay. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about let's talk about the beginning and the end, maybe. Uh, what, was, uh, what was your first job at eBay? So my, my first job was, was a, a software development engineer in test. And so at that point, um, you know, some people might sort of see it as a, as a step down. I mean, I'd, I'd been in management positions and, and was sort of looking to sort of step up to senior management positions in uh, the consulting work I was doing uh, back in Tokyo. But, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to sort of reconnect with my, my technical chops and, and uh, I wasn't quite ready to let those go yet. And so I sort of stepped in as – as a, as a tester who was also a coder and did that for a while. Um, but uh, inevitably, I seemed to get, kind of get pushed back towards management. And this time, I kind of stepped into a, a dev manager role, uh, so leading a, leading a team of, of developers and testers uh, and did that for, for a little while and then back into a, a test manager role and ended up being the, uh, the head of testing for uh, European product development. And um, did you did you bring do you, or do you bring to your uh, role in managing uh, any of the sort of uh, examples or lessons that you've learned from your time studying kendo? I like to think so. I mean, I, I don't know that there's there's a one to one translation, but certainly in the way that you you size up situations and that you you deal with people, um, you know, I, I like to think that. Um, the way I approach situations is, is kind of similar to the way I, I approach a, a kendo match. You know, you, you kind of have to rapidly size size up what's going on, uh, make decisions, and and uh, be ready for anything to to uh, to happen, and and be able to adjust accordingly. Um, whether, whether it be fighting one person or whether you're you know pitching sort of several you know, an army against each other. Um, you know the the first thing that that gets uh, gets shot up is is the uh, your battle plan. You have to be able to adjust and and adapt and uh, be flexible. Um, speaking of flexibility, um, you uh, you you left um, eBay relatively recently. I believe it was just this year, um, and you're now the UK managing director for the consultancy House of Test. That's right. Which uh, yeah, which has a presence um, in Denmark, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. Right. Um, and, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of work house of test does and what makes it unique. Um, I, I noticed reading up about it, that there's a, a, a striking line on the website, which says we call bullshit on dehumanizing factory testing, bogus certification schemes. And it's, it, you know, the, it's very clear that this is not, um, I, I, I think I came across the term, maybe it was in your, your writing or on the website, you know, if you. If you're a client who just want wants meat bots to follow right. some scripts, we're not the consultancy for you. Right. Yeah. So if I had to um, sort of put what we do in, into a into a sort of a, a nutshell description, it really is kind of professional irreverence. Um, so we're, we're we're people who will come in and size up a situation and tell it to you straight. Um, you know, if you're looking for people who will just say who will nod along and and, and do everything that you tell them to. Um, yeah, probably not the droids you're looking for. Um, 
you know, where, where there is work to, to be done, obviously we're going to pitch in and do it. That's that's part of the job. But um, you know, as, as software testers in particular, you know, your your, your role is, is to be able to speak truth to power, even when that's a difficult thing to do, even when that's not news that they want to hear, even when there's a risk that they might sort of shoot the messenger. Um, and so, being able to step into that space and you know understand that you know if they don't want to hear what we have to say then then we can fire a client that that's a that's a nice position to be in um you know it's it's not a position that you want to be in necessarily but when when they know that that you you don't have a dog in the fight beyond helping them to do the best work they possibly can um i think that makes it a little easier you know when 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 my reputation hinges on me being able to enable being able to enable uh, a client to do better work then you know obviously i have a vested interest in helping them do better so even when i'm bringing them difficult information if i can help them keep that in mind then you know then we have the ability uh to to move forward and um was that a was that a hard decision um to go from you know a big established company where you you know you've seen some success to uh you know I mean, you're with a, a group of people, but sort of being being your own bosses. Uh, yes and no. Um, so it was difficult in the sense that uh, you know it happened right around the same time that uh, that my daughter was born. Uh, you know, my, my first child, and so uh, starting a company, having a newborn um, simultaneously was was uh, I guess an interesting choice, um, but uh, a motivating one. I, I guess you could say. Um, you know, with, with eBay, I, I really enjoyed my time there, and there, there was certainly no dissatisfaction in terms of, of uh, the reasons why, why, why I left. Um, you know, what I wanted to achieve uh, at eBay, I probably would have necessitated me moving to the United States, and, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't really up for that at this this point in time. So uh, again, it, it, this became a, a kind of a natural uh, progression for me. Um, with, with House of Test, I mean, the, the people who are involved in the company are, are people that I've known for many, many years. I, I first met uh, Henrik Anderson, uh, Luke Perold, Carsten Feilberg um, at uh, CAST, the conference for the Association of Software Testing back in, I think it was 2006, uh, and I've been firm friends with them ever since. Um, so really, you know, when, when it came time to look at what was next this this seemed like a, a natural progression for me uh well congratulations uh by the way um <laughs> uh, thank you uh that's uh, wonderful wonderful to hear um uh i know that people and there, there's a sort of pretty tight testing community or sort of uh distribution of testing communities around the world um and i just wanted to point out there was an interesting coincidence um recently i interviewed rob lambert um right uh for this podcast and he taught, he has a book called parent brain um, right. where he talks about a kind of turnaround moment in his life, which was the birth of his first child. Um, and he happens to, I mean, it, this, this happened later, not around the same time, but he happens to have struck off on his own uh, as well, relatively very recently um, from the company he'd been with for years. And I just wanted to uh, do a little callback because that, that, um, uh, interview would be published before this one and um this wasn't a planned coincidence um uh one of the really interesting things about the testing world that i'm you know mostly learning about through these interviews and reading books from testers on lean pub uh is that if you're a company 
or you know you're even a startup and you're looking to hire some testers um you have to be able to do some evaluation of your own in order to decide who to choose and yes. um what 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 do you do um and you talk in your article in David Greenlee's book uh software testing as a martial art about um I'd never seen this term before bullshito um right. and mcdojos um right. and I believe there's there might be a connection you know uh between that and criticism that you I believe have of bullshit certifications in right. software skills and testing and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that I mean is is it is it a similar situation in testing where you know there's just anybody can put up their shingle and say hi you know testers are us yeah, the, the, there is unfortunately a kind of a low barrier to entry for software testing, um, and, and that is mostly because uh, non, not other vocations uh, tend not to recognise good testing when they see it. Unfortunately, there there is so much um, sort of faux wisdom out there about what testing is, and most of that looks like you know writing test scripts or, or uh, you know traceability matrices and, and, and heavyweight scripting and heavyweight documentation. Um, you know, and there's been a sort of a backlash against that from from uh, sort of the the programming spheres of you know you know we can do our own testing we can do it we can write our own our own automation, um, which is which is all fine, um, but uh, you know I, I think there there is something to be said about uh, the the discipline of software testing and uh, the amount of work that it takes to get good at software testing and and so. The problem that I have with with certifications, at least in the current form, I'm, I'm not anti-certification, but I am sort of uh, anti anything which will give you uh, some sort of qualification, so-called qualification, without proving that you've got the practical application behind you. There's, the, the thing about uh, current certifications is you can more or less study for a weekend and then take a, a multiple choice e exam and call yourself a certified software tester. Uh, despite the fact that you might not have tested anything in your life. I could probably train someone o over a day or two uh, to pass this exam, despite the fact that they weren't a software tester or knew much about computers in general. Um, and so in their current form, I don't think that they have a lot of practical value. Um, and that's really the missing element, is that that practical side. And unfortunately, uh, for the people who are peddling certifications, that prac side doesn't scale very well. Uh, you know, you, you can't sort of teach it on mass the same way that you can with a, a syllabus and a multiple choice exam. Um, and so that's that's really where my issue is. My 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 focus at the moment really is how how do you teach the, the practical application of these skills? And uh, and and how do you do that? That's a good question, and and you do that by you, you learn software testing by testing software. Um, you know, there's I don't think there's any substitute for putting in the hours. Um, the the real key, I think, becomes how you sort of set up your your own personal syllabus and how you find what it is that you, that you need to be studying. And I think now there is a, a critical mass of software testing talent out there that you can tap into. Um, you know, organizations like the, the Ministry of Testing, for example, um, have 
any any amount of, of, of sort of free material that you can use to, to, to sort of start to hone your skills. And there are people that are available, you know, on, on the various sort of Slack channels and various other sort of media that you can ask questions of. And as, as long as you're, um, you know, not a baby bird waiting to, to have sort of information sort of thrown at you, um, then people will go out of their way to help you. If, if you if you can demonstrate that you're doing your best to help yourself, people will be happy to help you. And I think, I think that's, that's the real key. There's, there's probably space to, to formalize that a little bit. I, I would like to see uh, software testing or software development apprenticeships set up um, where there are people who are recognized as sort of uh, masters, if you like, in, in software, software development, software testing, various other vocations, product ownership, um, UX. Um, you know, I'd like to see, um, you know, some sort of school set up where you could do, you know, a year on each of the fundamentals of the different disciplines. If you could spend a year studying programming, then studying testing, studying UX, studying product ownership, um, and then start to specialize as, as, a, as a journey person, um, you know, then you've got a, a solid fundamental a sort of set of fundamentals and uh, this sort of this um, – interactional expertise between the, the different vocations and, and no matter which you decide to specialize in or if you decide to remain a generalist, then I, I think your ability to operate would be uh, far greater than if you just chose one and, and stuck with it. Yeah, I found um, your writing about this idea of apprenticeship to be very um, compelling. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting idea. Is, is, I'm curious, is part of the idea that, um, you know, just like in martial arts training, as long as you remain active or even otherwise, you retain a relationship with your teacher, even if you move on uh, to another school or um, to make your own school. In, in, your, in your concept of apprenticeship, would this be something where you would maintain a relationship with your, uh, you know, quote unquote, master, even as you went through different jobs at different companies? I, I think so. Um, certainly, that's that's well, that's one of the things that I envisage, and, and certainly in, in terms of your your growth, you ought to be able to be able to sort of, sort of produce some sort of, of, of sort of formalized, sort of notarized um, history of, of, of what you've done, um, and, and sort of being able to to call back on here are the projects that I've worked on, and, and uh, you know have have them almost almost signed off by. Uh, by your, your teacher or your, your, uh, your, your sensei, whatever you want to call them, um, as you know, someone who can review the work that you've done and provide guidance or, or mentorship or coaching, whatever, whatever the, the, the case may call for. Um, you know, I think there is, there is space for that. Um, but uh, equally importantly is, is the sort of the, the, the journey person part of, of um of the apprenticeship. I mean, the apprenticeship is not just learning the fundamentals, it's going out and applying them. And, and as, as, as importantly, misapplying them, um, you know, people will learn their lessons imperfectly. And some of those imperfections will actually be useful. Some of those will be, you know, added to the, the canon that is, is, um, uh, you know, the fundamental software testing. And that's, that's good. The way that you, you know, you learn from, from different people, uh, and synthesize different aspects, uh, and, uh, produce novelty. Um, you know, these are all things that I think are a little bit missing from the way that we approach, um, learning about software development right now. There's no real sense of lifelong learning, uh, about software development. And I think that's a real shame. Um, moving on to, uh, the 
next part of this interview, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book, Standout. Um, sure. You've interviewed a lot of people over the years, and um, I've got a question about that. I, 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 was, I, I do want to ask you a sort of you know, standard fun question. You know, what's the worst thing you've ever seen an interviewee do? Um, but before that, uh, I was surprised by a section in your book about bad interviewers. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What are one or two examples of pure, poor interviewer behavior that interviewees can encounter and what can they do uh, to help themselves out in those situations? Yeah. Uh, so the, the ones that I've most commonly encountered is, is the, the aggressive interviewer, the one who will try and sort of put you off balance or make you feel uncomfortable or make you feel like, you know, you're, you're unworthy, you know, like why, why tell me why you think you deserve a position here. Um, you know, interviews can be stressful enough without sort of laying, laying that on you know, over the top of it. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that uh, as an interviewee, um, whilst, whilst you're being interviewed, you're also interviewing the company. You're also doing your due, due diligence. And there's no reason for you to sort of sit in a room and be browbeaten. Um, you know, it's, it's quite okay to take someone to task for, for being rude. Um, and uh, you'll probably find if you do that, then they'll probably sort of backpedal and sort of say, ah, oh, you've, you've, you've passed our test. You know, we just wanted to see how you would handle pressure, which is bollocks, but, uh, you know, that'll happen sometimes. Um, I have heard of, but not seen things like, um, people being, being sat with, with, uh, the sun in their eyes or on a, on a chair that's, that's, that's lower or uncomfortable or, or broken somehow. Um, you know, various other, other tactics to, to kind of, um, you know, assert dominance of, of, of the interviewer. And again, I, I find all of that particularly irksome, uh, and unnecessary. Uh, I, I think as an interviewer, what you're trying to do is understand what this person has done, what they're capable of, um, and, and what their, what their potential is and, and anything else is just a waste of time really. Yeah, it's really, that's a really, thanks for that great answer. It's, it's, um, a really interesting thing that there is this convention that an interview ought to be some kind of ordeal. Um, and in particular, a type of ordeal that they will never encounter in the course of the work you're hiring them to do. Right. Um, you know, if you're hiring someone to be a fire person, then yeah, sure. You know, blare the sirens and make them run up and down the staircase and then operate some machinery. Um, but you know, if, if you are going to simulate some kind of stressful environment, then, then simulate the kind of environment they might find themselves in for reals. Right. Um, what, what is, what is one of the, can you think of one or two of the funnier stories that you've seen people do in interviews? Yeah, mostly, mostly it's people just being nervous. Um, and, uh, probably the, the most memorable one for me was, was, uh, was a guy was was uh, he was so nervous um, that uh, that he, he broke wind in the elevator on, on the way up to the interview room. Uh, so that that didn't endear him to me from the start. Oh, um, yeah, uh, but uh, he, he was also reasonably in, in curious, uh, and, and so you know wh- whatever a question I asked him, uh, his response was something along the lines of, "Well, I, I just do whatever the procedures say to do," um, and you know. I couldn't sort of get him to open up any more about sort of what his own ideas were. I'm not sure whether he was afraid to share those with me, but but uh, he, he obviously wanted to, to give the right answers. Um, the other 
the other unfortunate thing about uh, this particular gent was was uh, you know personal hygiene issues. Um, you know, when he went to shake hands, he put out this sort of filthy monster talon, um, which uh, which frightened the hell out of me. But uh, you know. You know, I, I try and give people a pass when 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 they're nervous. You know, everyone's nervous going into an, into an interview, and so you know, if if you can set some sort of, of uh, uh, water cooler banter to just kind of get them relaxed, then then that's great. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in terms of, of uh, funny stories, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have that many. Um, most of it's it, it's. Uh, you know, people forgetting stuff somewhere or, or, or tripping over or, or, you know, spilling water on themselves or, you know, those sorts of things. And, and then the, the sort of immediate look of, of panic on their face as they as they realize that, oh, no, I've, I've absolutely fluffed, fluffed this interview. Um, and, you, you know, you do whatever you can to kind of reassure them that, no, no, we're not going to not hire someone because they've spilled a drink on themselves. You know, it's, it's cool. Just just chill out. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't. I, sorry, I, I guess I should have framed that question differently. I didn't mean to, you know, sort of for us to sit here and talk about humiliating experiences people had. I just, you know, sometimes um, uh, um, people can do outrageous, outrageous things, and it looks like you've been fortunate enough to mostly not encounter those. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah the the, the uh, there was one guy that in, uh, now, now that you mention it. Um, I asked him if he could if he could do anything that he wanted, if he could have any job that he wanted. This is a fairly standard question that I ask. If he, if he could do anything he wanted, what would that be? Uh, and this was this was back in Melbourne, uh, and uh, he said, uh, if I could do anything I wanted, uh, I would open up a bakery in, in Akitaken in the north of Japan. And uh, you know, me and the the uh, my offsider sort of looked at each other and, and uh, you know. Sort of asked him to open up about that a bit, and, and uh, apparently he, he'd uh, he'd spent six months at uh, at a high school in in, in Akita, and, and uh, had fell in love with the place, and, and wanted nothing more than to go back there. And, and uh, so I think we suggested that he ought to go and do that. Uh, we probably ended up not hiring him, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a very that's a very nice story. Um, uh, you know, someone who knows what they want to do <laughs> uh, is actually can be pretty pretty hard to find in a way, and um, and often uh, I haven't done as much interviewing as you have, but, you know, sometimes you do find yourself in the situation where without, without trying to second guess them, uh, you can actually see that maybe the job that they're interviewing for really isn't right for them, um, as much as they might, might think it is. And that as an, as a responsible interviewer, it actually is, is, you know, partly your duty to make that distinction as well. Um, Uh, and so one of the, one of the interesting things, you know, for the, the sort of, uh, readers that your book would be, uh, you know, really, uh, useful for, um, one of the catch 22s that people encounter when they're trying to start a career, um, is, you know, you can only apply if you've got experience, uh, right. but, but how do you get experience if you can't apply in the first place? Yeah. Uh, and what, what's your suggestion, you know, so for, you know, given all the, the tools and things available to people in, in, in our, our day and age, you know, what, what can you do if you're if you're getting started or you're thinking about getting started and trying to plan your approach? So my recommendation there would, would be to treat those sort of laundry list of requirements as guidelines and recommendations, not must-haves. Even if they say must-have, I would I would apply anyway. Uh, if nothing else, you're still getting interview experience. Um, beyond that, um, you know, you, you, there are any number of, of, sort of um, open source projects that you could work on. Um, you know, if you've got your own sort of GitHub account, then, then add code in there, for instance, um, do what you can do to, um, 
to gain experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be paid employment. There's, you know, if you look into volunteering, look into internships, um, you know, there, there are other options out there. And so if you're having difficulty getting a foot in the door, that might be one way to go about it. Um, I would also suggest looking at, at uh, local meetups uh, and if you can, going to, to conferences um, and just just getting out there and, and uh, meeting people who are in the business and can provide assistance um, and, and starting to, if nothing else, build those networks as well. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really interesting advice. I've I've seen it um, uh, from a couple of other people as well. That um, you know, just you can't you can't. It it will be very difficult for you to get started and to progress uh, unless you're somewhat social, right? Uh, in in developing your career and that yeah, there, and that fortunately there are meetups that you can go to to get started, and there are conferences that you can go to, and you can even start doing things like proposing talks and and getting up there, and you don't need to approach it like you know you need to climb everest on your first effort to climb a mountain um you know right. you, you can you can go at your own pace uh and uh and you'll just like anything else you will gradually become more comfortable with it and learn the ropes um but you did you, you do need to dip your toe in at least to begin with yeah and and the other thing to remember i think is that it's a marathon not a sprint small small amounts of effort consistently will do a lot better than than one major effort and then nothing again um, I wanted to uh, call attention to um, a cause that you've been um, using your book to raise some money for. Uh, I hope I don't mispronounce the name, but uh, it's um, Saving Linnea. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that just for a couple of minutes so people know um, about that? Yeah. So a, a colleague of mine um, in Sweden, uh, his daughter uh, has a, a very aggressive uh, form of, of cancer in, in, in the brain and uh he is raising funds to, um, to to give her a treatment which is is reasonably expensive and, and, and experimental in nature and uh, happening in in Mexico. Uh, and of course, with with my little one arriving in in, in the world earlier this year, uh, I, I can only imagine how difficult that must be uh, for for him and his family to to go through. And and uh, I would like to think that were I in a similar situation that uh, people would do everything they can do uh, to help. Um, and, and so, you know, knowing that and feeling that, I, I feel that, that, you know, this is perhaps the, the least I can do um, to, to help them out. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that, that, uh, that uh, you know, I, I give them every opportunity to, to, to save this little, little girl's life. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that she comes out of the other side of that happy and healthy. Thanks for that description. Um, for anyone interested uh, in learning more or potentially uh, donating, you can uh, go to savinglinea.com, uh, and the name is spelled L-I-N-N-E-A. Um, so you decided to write a book at some point. Um, what uh, what inspired that choice? So really, um, you know, looking, looking at my career in, in, uh, in, in testing, I'm surprised that the thought didn't occur to me sooner. Actually, there's there is a lot that has changed over the years, um, but really the thing that has stayed the same um, is interviewing, um, and really that is that a lot of people, most people, I think, don't really know how to approach an interview or, or how to write a CV, and that stayed pretty constant for the for the sort of decade and a half that I've been in the business. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was kind of pull the the, the, the kind of wisdom that I've, I've accumulated over the years and and put that into some sort of practical guide that could could uh, 
you know, give people a, a leg up in terms of how do I structure my CV so that I get noticed? How do I approach? How do I an, approach an interview so that um, you know I stand a good choice of being hired? But also, how do I make sure that I know that this is the company I want to go and, and uh, exchange my only finite resource for? And uh, so that's what I did. And um, why did you decide to use LeanPub as your platform? So I wanted to to use a, a, a platform where um, I could control the message, uh, where I wasn't going to be told, you know, cut this or add that. Um, you know, I wanted to, to really... Um, make sure that, that what I was putting out there was, was my own voice for, for starters. Um, and uh, beyond that, you know, I'd seen a, a, a number of colleagues of mine also using LeanPub uh, to, to good effect. And uh, so it seemed like a, a natural choice, I guess. Um, normally I would have just one more question for you, but I have a special bonus extra question I'll ask after. But um, uh, if there were one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, if there's anything you can think of, what would that be? Ah, okay, good question. So for me, I think it would probably be able to, you know, when using the the web editor, be able to see the the changes immediately reflected, um, you know, in, in real time, as opposed to having to to sort of generate um, the the manuscript and then and then check it. I ended up using uh, Atom as a as a um, as an editor to write the mark markdown, uh, and then sort of copy paste that into the the web editor. Um, just so, because Atom was something that would allow me to sort of instantly see the, the layout that I was putting in place. And so uh, even still, you know, I, I found there was a little bit of sort of trial and error in terms of generating the manuscript and, and checking that the layout was, was exactly where I wanted it to be. Um, you know, that, that, page, that pages were, were breaking in the right places and, and so forth. And so were, you, were you writing in LeanPub flavored markdown? I was, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, thanks. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for that. That's really interesting, I mean, for us to hear – you're using an entirely different tool to then paste into LeanPub is a pretty good sign of a pain point for a certain use case. Um, uh, I believe that one of the reasons um, we currently make you generate the whole thing to create a preview and we don't have an instant version is that, you know, there is there, what we're doing is we're, um, we're set up for being able to uh, do things for the most complicated case. Right. Um, and in, for the most complicated case, we can't really yet currently show you an instant uh, rend rendering of what it will look like in, you know, PDF. Um, but it is something for us to consider that if somebody is, you know, not, you know, using, you know, LeanPub flavored Markdown or Markua to make tables and all kinds of other things, then maybe um, we could do do something around that. Mm. Um, that would, that, that's something we'll think about. Um, yeah. At some point, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to write the, uh, the, the obvious book end to this book and which is, uh, interview on the other side of the table. So, uh, having something like that would make life so, so much easier. Okay. Well, well, thanks very much for that. Um, so my special bonus question is, uh, in an hour, I'm going to be interviewing Jerry Weinberg. Um, <laughs> and, said hi. yeah. Oh, do you, do you know him? Uh, I, I know Jerry. Uh, you know, met him a number of times. Did uh, did PSL with him a few years back. Um, you know, we we have talked from time to time. So uh, I'm very fond of Jerry. Oh, okay, okay, oh, great. I just wanted to ask if there's one question uh, you could get me to ask him for an interview. What do you think I would I should ask it? Either you'd be personally interested in hearing him, hearing from him, or you think people might be interested in hearing from him. Ah, wow. 
I wish I had some time to think about this one, actually. Um, but uh, off the top of my head, um, uh, something cheeky to ask him would, would be which he likes better, testing or programming. Okay. Uh, but uh, ask, he's also into um, sort of drywall construction, and, and so asking him um, his thoughts on that as it relates to software testing or software development would be probably an interesting uh, thing to hear about. I will definitely do that. So drywall construction um, uh, in relation to software testing. Cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, thanks very much, Ben, for that. Um, I really appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time to do this interview. And thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Thanks for having me.